Well, good evening. Glad you're here for the third in our December series of classes on the ancestors of Jesus. We'll finish that up in this session, and then we won't have Wednesday night programming in the church at all for classes for the next two weeks. Now, next week, on Wednesday, that's Christmas Eve Eve, there is a service, so you probably noticed that in our bulletin. So we start services next Wednesday evening, we have a service, and then several in the chapel and the sanctuary on Thursday. Then the following week is the, basically New Year's Eve, and so we will not have Wednesday classes then. We'll start back here on January 6th, and we'll start a new series. It's going to be a series on the book of Acts which has so many ties together so much. It's sort of like after the resurrection, all the disciples looked at each other and says, what do we do now? And that's the book of Acts. And so I'm excited about that. It's going to be a fascinating study. Can you use maps in that? You, have, you bet you can use maps in that. And um, we just finished a trip through kind of the travels of Paul in Greece and Turkey recently. So I have a lot of pictures of some of the actual places. I'll show you the place where everybody thinks Paul was imprisoned in Philippi, things like that, that'll hopefully make it come alive for us. So that's what we'll be doing next. So starting January 6th, we'll do the book of Acts. Let me say a prayer and we'll jump right into tonight's lesson. Lord, thank you for the many blessings you've showered upon us. As we look around the world, we're tempted to be depressed or concerned. And Father, there are many serious things happening, but we know that your spirit is at work both in us and in this world. I pray you'd give us a spirit of boldness to hear your word, to put it into our hearts and our minds, and then go do it. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you guys probably know that during class, you're welcome to uh, text questions to that number. We'll answer as many as we can. We're talking about the ancestors of Jesus. We went into Matthew chapter 1, looked at the genealogy, and in this series, we just picked out some of the people in the uh, genealogy of Jesus and just tell their story. In our first two lessons, we looked at some kings in the, in the lineage of Jesus. One not so good, one that was good, and there were lessons from both of their lives. In this lesson, we're not going to talk about a king. We're going to talk about somebody really close to Jesus, but somebody about whom not much is known. And it's really a pretty fair question of, why is this guy in the genealogy of Jesus? Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy is split into three time periods, three parts. Fourteen generations from Abraham, approximately 2000 BC, until uh, the time of the kings to David, approximately 1,000 B.C. Then another 14 generations from the time of David until the exile, the Babylonians taking many of the Jews out in 586 B.C. And then this third portion, after the exile to Babylon, after 586, down to the birth of Jesus. And we want to focus on Joseph, as in Joseph and Mary. Joseph is a fascinating study, partly because we're so, we wish we knew more about Joseph. But there are hints and clues that we can glean some information about Joseph and his life and Jesus and his upbringing, if you will. Before we jump into that, as you'll notice on your note page, let's talk about, as we have in all of our lessons, what's going on in the world at this time. So we're right at the birth of Jesus and Instead of the Babylonians, 
or the Assyrians or the Egyptians and Israel being caught in the geopolitics of the time, the situation in the world is very different at this time. Let me show you a map of the world in this era. This is basically a map of the Roman Empire. It's color code, very nice map, color coded to show you conquest through time. But the point I'd like to make is you'll notice that Rome controls this entire area of the world. From Egypt, well up into what was the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire in the north, virtually all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. Rome is the dominant power at this time period. It is undisputed master of this part of the world. And uh, that has some interesting effects on this time period. One is you don't have the nation of Israel as a nation anymore. It is a province, one of the ruled provinces of Rome. You don't have Israel caught up in trying to survive between the forces in the north and the forces in the south. That's not happening. There's no battles being fought. There's no threat to Israel's existence from neighbors. As long as everybody obeys the Romans, everything goes smoothly. It's a really different situation. In fact, it's very peaceful situation. Now, Rome was not a great government. Rome's very oppressive, but they did guarantee order and stability and peace because if you want to maximize taxes and profitability from your provinces, really peace is a good thing. It's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so Joseph, Jesus, and Mary come into this time in history where there's really unparalleled peace in this part of the world. In Judea itself, let's focus in now a little more narrowly into Israel. It is ruled by a man named Herod. It's actually ruled by Rome, and there is a Roman governor. But the way the Romans ruled their provinces, they liked to let the locals keep their local laws as long as it didn't uh, conflict with Roman law. They liked to let the locals handle their own little squabbles as long as the taxes kept flowing. And so in addition to the Roman government, which was merely there to make sure taxes kept flowing, basically, they had a local government. And in this part of the world, a man named Herod in 37 BC, ruled 37 BC to 4 BC was his reign. He got in good, basically, with uh, Caesar Augustus and was, had himself appointed the king of the Jews. So he was the local ruler. In other words, all the courts and the municipal buildings and the road construction and all of that sort of thing, the discipline, if you know your fire alarm goes off, the fire department, he's responsible for all of those kinds of things. The Romans were very light-handed in terms of how much they wanted to get into people's lives as long as they did what they were told and kept paying their taxes. But Herod ruled this entire area as the king of the Jews. Well, Jesus is born approximately 6 or 5 BC, just before Herod dies. But as Jesus is growing up, Herod is not ruling this anymore. When Herod died, he had a will, and he sent it to Caesar, and he said to Caesar, look, it's your province, but I'd really like it if you let my kids rule it. And so he divided it up and wanted to have his children rule it. So from 4 BC 
until 39 AD. So through the life of Jesus, uh, this is ruled by his kids. Herod is an interesting character because Herod's known for just really changing the face of Israel. In some ways, he took Israel and brought it up in the world. For example, here's a model of uh, the temple. Actually, this is in Jerusalem at the museum, and there is a model of the city there that when we go, we walk around this model. It is unbelievably accurate, and it's really great for positioning yourself. But there, they have a replica of the temple, and Herod built this, and to really, a lot of it was his own ego, but it also brought Israel into the forefront of the world. He was a great builder, had a lot of building projects going on in this era, the time when Jesus is growing up. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes when we talk about Joseph and what he did for a living. But this is Herod's building. Herod not only was egotistical in that he wanted to build monuments to himself, he was also incredibly paranoid. So he also built fortresses. This is one of the more famous fortresses. It's called the Herodium or the Herodian. It is a, this is an aerial view, of course, but it is a massive conical hill that he had built with, on top of it is a magnificent palace, very luxurious, think Four Seasons Hotel, and a garrison, a place that could be defended. This place is almost impossible to conquer. So this is just a few miles from Bethlehem just a few miles from where Jesus is born. In fact, I like to go to Bethlehem and here when we do our Israel trips. By the way, we have another one in February. I should mention this to you because there's still a couple of spots available. So if you want to check our website, uh, we'll be going there, we'll be going here. But one of the great lessons you get here is you begin to appreciate how powerful Herod was and how paranoid Herod was. And so that also influenced, as you'll see, the story of Joseph and Mary and Jesus as well. So again, I want you to feel the idea that this birth narrative, this story, the Christmas story in Luke that we're going to uh, read mainly from, uh, the Gospel of Luke, some from Matthew, is happening inside a real political environment. And the events of the day affected what was going on with Joseph and Mary and Jesus. So this is Herod. Herod's building, Herod's, uh, again, like I say, Herod was always afraid that they were going to rebel against him. He wasn't a particularly good king uh, because he was really out for himself. Well, at the end, he wanted to keep that dynasty in his family, and he was successful in doing that. And so Caesar basically modified his will a little bit, but let his kids carry on after him. And they're also called Herods, sort of like Caesar. Caesar was a person's name, and it became... Uh, it became a family name, and it became a title. Same with Herod. Herod was his name, but his kids had names like Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus. Uh, so they would name the kids Herod Philip, uh, Herod uh, Antipater, had a number of kids, some of whom he killed because he thought they were plotting against him. But he divided it up. And so for most of the time Jesus is growing up, you basically have it ruled not by one king like Herod, but you have it ruled by these tetrarchs, sometimes called ethnarchs. These are Greek words for just rulers of certain provinces. We're going to come back to this in just a little bit because it actually affects something in the life of Jesus uh, as to who's ruling where. But you'll see that uh, this basically has Herod Antipas in the north, Herod Philip in the east, 
and that Archelaus had all that main area of Judea and Samaria, most of what we know today as modern Israel. So after Herod's death, this is how it's governed. It was a very peaceful time. It was not a pleasant time. Taxes were high, pretty oppressive, not a lot of justice going on, but there at least weren't armies attacking Israel like in some of our other stories. So this is the political environment into which Joseph and Mary come together and Jesus is born. Well, let's talk a little bit about Joseph himself. And I'd like to kind of focus on what, we don't know a lot, but what do we actually know about Joseph? Let's go to the scriptures first. And Luke gives us this introduction. It says, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, up in the north, to Judea, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is, today it's a suburb of Jerusalem, so it's very close to Jerusalem. So you're introduced to Joseph, you're introduced to the Roman census, so everybody has to go back to their ancestral place to register. By the way, they didn't do census uh, so that you could count people, they did the census so they could tax people. So he had to go back and register for taxes. So he left Nazareth up in the Galilee in the north and he made his way to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. We know that from the genealogy in Matthew. He was indeed a descendant of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was engaged to him, little more than that, but pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So first thing we see about it is Joseph is living in Nazareth, but the story recognizes that he's a descendant of David and his ancestral home is in Bethlehem, the city of David that he is engaged to Mary, and Mary is expecting a child. And their lives don't begin in any way the way they anticipate it, but certainly not having the baby while they're on the road in Bethlehem. That's our introduction to this little family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Here's the story in Matthew 1, and we begin to see some of the character traits, because I'd like to talk about two things about Joseph. One is his faith and his character, and then second, I just want to talk about his occupation, because that affects the next question is, how did Jesus grow up? What was his childhood like? Well, first, his faith and his character. Matthew gives us some interesting insights. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they were married, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. Well, let's camp out here for just a little bit because there are three important traits of this man Joseph that I think are worth spending a little time on. The first is, and by the way, this isn't said about a lot of people in scripture, but it said Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. What does that mean? That's a very religious term, but what it really meant then and what it means now is he was a person whose relationship or whose standing with God was in good stead. He was someone who pursued God, and what that meant for a Jew was that he was observant. 
He was devout. You'll see a little bit later that this whole family was very devout. Think of him as somebody like today would be equivalent to a family that uh, prays before their meals, that are committed to church attendance, that are committed to giving to the Lord's work, that read the scriptures with their children, that study their Bibles. I'm, I'm just painting you a picture of actions that would reflect the desire to serve God, to follow God. That's Joseph. By saying he's a righteous man, what this says in his era is that he pursued God. God was at the center of his life. It also says, and this is a little different than our time, but under the law of Moses, to be called a righteous man meant that you also observed the law. It doesn't mean you never sinned, but it meant that he was observant. In other words, he would make some of the pilgrimages to Jerusalem. He would make the proper sacrifices. They make the exact sacrifices on the exact times they're supposed to after Jesus is born. I'm not going to cover that, but on the eighth day, they take him to be circumcised, and they give the sacrifices that you're called to. So he's very observant of God's laws. In other words, he wants to do the things that God has commanded. And in the eyes of the community, and obviously in the eyes of God, he is a righteous man. He's someone that does observe what God wants. The second thing you see, though, and this doesn't always go together, is he's a gracious man. Being righteous, particularly in a Jewish sense, or Christians who have kind of a works-based salvation, something we can slip into, do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing, sometimes we can be right observant, but not necessarily very kind or gracious. And it's remarkable to me that Joseph is not only righteous. For example, Jesus is basically going to say about the Pharisees that they're righteous in the sense of being following the rules. He says, except your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Basically what he's saying there is, is I acknowledge that they are trying to keep the rules. Now, his issue with the Pharisees had to do with the second part, no heart, no mercy, no grace, no love. It was empty. What this is saying about Joseph is not only was he righteous, but he also had compassion. He was a gracious man. And so instead of doing what he had every right to do, and in fact, what he should have done to protect his own reputation, is he should have gone to the middle of town and posted a declaration posted on his Facebook page and said, Mary and I are no longer Facebook official dating. We are not engaged anymore because she violated the law. That would have been very disgraceful to her, but then people wouldn't be talking about Joseph like, ooh, well, you know, she's with child. I wonder if Joseph did something wrong, or I heard they broke up. I mean, that Joseph, what's the deal with him? Is maybe he have a commitment problem, you know, whatever. The point is... His, for him, it would have been better to do what the law allowed, and that is denounce her and put her aside. But he doesn't do that. And by the way, I know that in the law of Moses, it says that you would, for example, in Mary's situation, she's an unmarried woman and she's pregnant, that it calls for her to be stoned. The reason that it, this says, though, that in order to not expose her to public disgrace is that two reasons. Number one, by the time, by this era, it was not always carried out. I know that that's what the law of Moses says, but they didn't stone people for everything that they were commanded to stone people for. They were not following the law of Moses as devoutly as they had before. But secondly, the Ro one of the things that the Romans 
lid did was that you, you couldn't do capital punishment. Now, I'm gonna, you're going to see in our next series that the Jews did sometimes, but only in a riot-type situation, and it was subject to punishment. They weren't allowed to stone anybody, but it wasn't a common practice. So at this point, that's why it says what it says, is that the effect of this would not have been her death, but it would have been very much a public disgrace for her. So you see the graciousness of Joseph. Instead of being concerned about making sure his reputation was pristine, he just said, you know, we're going to do this quietly and try not to affect her life any more than it's affected, and I'll just take the hit to his reputation. So he's a righteous man, but he's also a gracious man. And those don't always go together. And I think there's a good lesson for us, is that doing the right things with God isn't enough without some compassion for others. I think that's why Jesus and some of the other rabbis summarized the law by saying the greatest command is to love God, and the second greatest command is to love your neighbor. And this is basically what it's saying about Joseph. The third thing is... And this is a third component. I mean, there's a little message of, of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ here. And that is, one, to be right, right relationship committed to pursue Christ. The second is gracious to those around us. John, by the way, is going to say many times in his letters, particularly in 1 John, he says, if anyone says that they love God but hates their brother, he's a liar. In other words, being right with God doesn't happen without being compassionate to others. But the third aspect is, notice what happens. He has this dream that says, look, you're going to put her away, and you're going to do it quietly, and you're a good guy for doing that. But I'm actually going to ask you to do more. I want you to go ahead and marry her. Now, you know what that meant? If he had put her aside, even quietly, people would have grumbled about him, but they would have at least inferred that that's not his baby. She really did something wrong. By marrying her, taking her home, what he was being told to do is they're going to say that you also did something wrong, that this is your child, and that both of you are outcasts. This is a big ask. It's a big commandment. The third characteristic of Joseph is that he's obedient. He's obedient. He was right before God, righteous man. He's a gracious man, and he, he's obedient. See, in the dream, he says, don't be afraid to take her home as your wife because this is something special. His name will be Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua means in Hebrew, in Hebrew, God saves, Yahweh saves. And that's why his name is Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. I mean, there's an awful lot of drama that gets summarized in that one little phrase. So we know about Joseph in terms of his faith and his character. He was righteous, he was gracious, and he was obedient. The scriptures tell us a little bit more. He wasn't just obedient at the expense of his reputation, which is saying something, by the way. A lot of us, I don't know if you've ever come to this situation, but I remember this happening to me uh, in, a, in a small way. Now, of course, nothing so dramatic as this story, but in a small way, I remember thinking myself one time that I had a little pride in, in, uh, in what I did in my business and in my job. And I remember one time thinking, you know, if I do this, people are going to say, well, you just aren't really very competent or you aren't very good. And I remember nobody spoke to me. I didn't have a dream or anything. But it's as though God said to me, he said, 
don't you realize that even your reputation is mine? In other words, when we talk about surrendering to Christ, sometimes we think that means, okay, I surrender. You can have my sins, and I'll just try to be a good boy. Surrender means everything that I have and am is yours. And sometimes there, there are things that we like to hold on to, aren't they? And sometimes our reputation is one of those things that like, well, you can have a lot of things, but don't ask me to do something that would cause other people to think poorly of me. Well, that's Joseph in spades. You know, he's being asked to do something. He's not only obedient in something that's personally difficult, he's obedient in a very dangerous situation. If he divorces Mary, then what's a, everything that's about to happen from this point does not happen to him. Watch what happens to him. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. After the baby is born, you know the story about Herod. Herod was told by the wise men that the Messiah has been born. He said, oh, well, I need to worship him too. Why don't you find him, come back and tell me where he is, because I have a little present for him. And you know what his present was is early death. And so they don't come back. They are smart enough and been warned that Herod's not trustworthy. So then Herod finds out and he says, we are going to go to where they said this was Bethlehem. And you remember the massacre of the innocents? In other words, Herod goes and has all the children under two years old killed in that city. Joseph is warned in a dream before that happened. And he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So now think about Joseph and what it says about him. Not only is he a gracious man, not only is he an obedient man, he marries them, has the baby while they're in Bethlehem on the road, and then he has a dream and he says, oh, and by the way, little Joseph, who's never come to the attention of the king of the Jews, he now wants to kill your child. So you need to get up. And you just need to call your boss in Nazareth and say, going to be a little longer than I thought, and I need you to go to Egypt. And so he gets up, takes his family, and flees with the money they have in their pockets and the clothes they have on their backs. And so they go to Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Hard to know exactly how long this is. Think one to two years. I mean, it's not a short period of time, but at least a year or two at the minimum until it was, and so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said, out of Egypt I called my son. So let's just get a graphic picture of this. So he goes from Nazareth down to uh, Bethlehem. Jesus is born. He's warned there that Herod is going to try to kill the child, and so he goes into Egypt and just tries to find work, support his family, picks up his roots, has no idea how long he'll be there, uh, just dif a difficult situation. And the really interesting thing about what it says of his character is he's not only obedient in the sense of what's personally difficult, he's obedient in the face of a very dangerous circumstance. So you have the flight to Egypt, and then he's told, after a period of time, that after Herod died, he's told then you can get up, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel, because those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So Herod has died. The will has gone to Caesar, and Caesar has put the kids in charge. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, this is one of Herod's kids, was reigning in Judea, so in the area of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, he appears to want to go back to his ancestral homeland, Bethlehem, live near the relatives. So he goes back there, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew then back to the north to Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And that was fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, someone from Nazareth. This is pretty interesting because Archelaus, interesting guy, let me show you the map. You can see again the kids that are ruling this. Archelaus was the promising kid. He's got the, the lion's share of the land. He turned out to be a terrible ruler. He put up a lot of stories about him, but I'll just tell you some of the ones that ended up uh, causing his demise. He didn't get to reign for very long, 4 BC until about 6 AD, maybe 10 years. He put up a golden eagle above the temple. Well, obviously, he's playing to the Romans. I mean, the eagle is a sign of Rome, and so he puts it up in the temple. Well, the Jews, that is blasphemy to the Jews. And so two professors and 40 of their college students work it up, up their courage, and they go in and they chop that thing down and take it away. Well, Archelaus is so upset about this, he has the two professors and the 40 students captured and has them all killed. Well, that causes the people of Jerusalem to begin an uprising. And it gets so serious that Archelaus calls in the army, sends them into the temple precincts, and kills 3,000 people. So things aren't going so well you know, with Archelaus. And this is why he does not want to go back there, because he realizes that's a very dangerous place. Archelaus is not a good ruler. In fact, eventually, Archelaus's uh, misdeeds come to the attention of the Romans. The Romans don't really care that he's killing some Jews, but let's face it, you kill the taxpayers, it's hard to tax them, right? And so they, they would prefer he's not killing these people and causing uproar, so they banished him. They just basically said, okay, you can't be in charge anymore. We're going to send you away somewhere else. That was such a blow to his ego that according to tradition, he killed himself. That's why uh, Joseph does not go back there. But it's interesting that Archelaus, despite he had no intention whatsoever of serving God's purpose, but because he was such a bad ruler, that's how Jesus ends up in Nazareth and it actually ends up fulfilling a prophecy that was made centuries before that. It's interesting to see how God uses the circumstances of the time to weave together what he said was going to happen. And that's what happened here. Question? No, we have several. Okay. Um, was Jesus related to Joseph genetically? No, in fact, if you notice the uh, genealogy traces his lineage from, and this is why, this is likely why Matthew and Luke's genealogy is a little different. Because one, the theory is one of them traces his line to Joseph through the father, which would be traditional, uh, and the other to the mother. That's what many people think the Luke, uh, Lucan uh, genealogy is about. But back to Matthew for a moment. It's very traditional. Remember I told you it was stylized? There are more than 14 generations in a thousand years. But it's basically a 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Its purpose, written by a Jew for Jews, is to say, I'm going to establish the pedigree of this Jesus. But even it is careful to say, and so-and-so is the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So he's not saying that Joseph is the father. He's clearly saying it's by the Holy Spirit. But still for Jew and Jewish ideas, the idea is, is that this is the, the genealogy. It is indeed 
descended from David. It's a matter of form rather than a matter of substance. So no, and even the scripture does not uh, even imply that he had genetically related to Joseph. Good question. Did Mary and Joseph ever get married? Did Mary and Joseph ever get married? Apparently so. I mean, well, actually, yes, they did. I mean, when he said he took Mary home, that means he married her. Well, he had the ceremony, quiet ceremony down at the courthouse, and takes her home, and then you're going to see later they have some more kids. And so we'll see that later. So, yes, they get married and have a normal family. Were Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, did they grow up there? Uh, it's difficult to know, but basically the first passage talks about Joseph coming from Nazareth, going back because of the census to Bethlehem. The implication is that, yes, that's where they grew up, is in Nazareth. We don't know that for certain, but th that seems to be a solid implication from that little hint of the scripture. Um, did Joseph die during Jesus' early years? He's not mentioned later. Yes, and in fact, I'll go ahead with the story because we're going to trace this on through. Before we leave, uh, one more thing about that will help answer this question, but it also before we leave Joseph's faith and character, the next thing we see, so they go to Egypt, they come back because of Archelaus, they go to Nazareth, it ends up fulfilling a prophecy, they grow up in Nazareth up in the north in Galilee, and this, listen to this, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, so this is the next thing you know about this family, was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom, and after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and they were unaware of it. They came with friends and family, a uh, big trip. You got a lot of kids, you lose one. Happens, it just happens, all right? So they leave Jesus there. You remember the story, they go back to find him. He's in the temple, and the rabbis can't believe this kid. And, you know, they say, why did you worry us so much? He said, I had to be about my father's business. So you know this one incident when he's 12, and then we don't know anything again until he's 30 years old in the scripture. But two things you can glean from this. Number one, final point about Joseph. He's, he's righteous, he's uh, gracious, he's obedient, he's observant. To go to the feast of the Passover all the way from Galilee, this is not a short trip by foot. It's on the north of Israel down to, not the southern tip, but a long way down to Jerusalem. They're very devout to pick up the family and do that every year, to take their sacrifice, their lamb in Jerusalem and sacrifice it. Not all Jewish families did this. I mean, a lot of people did, but nowhere near the whole population. So very observant. The whole family is very observant. It's not like Joseph went, left the wife and kids at home. They all go, even the children, and they're observant of the Passover in Jerusalem. The second thing you see is that Joseph is alive when Jesus is 12. And the next thing you realize is that he is likely not at the time of Jesus' ministry. Two reasons. Number one, Jesus, the very beginning of his ministry, when Jesus is 30 years old, uh, you have the wedding at Cana in Galilee where he did the first miracle. You can't prove that Joseph isn't married. Maybe he stayed home and said, honey, I don't like weddings. But legitimately, the fact that he's not mentioned there means he's probably dead. Certainly, by the time Jesus is approximately 33, at the end of his ministry, remember he's on the cross and he looks at John and said, behold your mother. In other words, take care of Mary. And Mary, behold your son. And so John, 
the Apostle John takes Mary in and treats her as though she were his own mother. You don't, wouldn't do that if Joseph were alive. So somewhere between the age of 12 and 30, Joseph apparently dies. We'll see a little bit later when he very beginning, uh, there's a, a passage here when we talk about his occupation that implies also that Joseph has died by the time Jesus is 30. So good question. So is Jesus biologically related to David since he's not biologically related to Joseph? Yes, that's a great question. Two, two thoughts on that. Number one is a matter of form, is that, uh, it's kind of sort of hard to explain, in a Jewish mindset, yes, because Joseph is his father. But a lot of people think that's why Luke, the genealogy in Luke, you still get the genealogy all the way down, but you get it through a different route, and it's believed that Mary is also in the line of David. And so, consequently, both ways. In other words, they're both in the line of David. And so you have a genetic connection. But I want you to understand, we think a genetic connection's a big deal. They don't think a genetic connection's a big deal. Does that make sense? That's why Matthew isn't worried about that. In fact, he's honest. He just says, this is Joseph. Look, he's in the line of David. His wife was Mary. She's the mother of Jesus. He's not trying to hide anything because Jewish minds are like, yep, he's in the line of David. That's odd to us because we're into genetics and DNA. That is not the way they thought about it. But that is one explanation of why Luke and Matthew are different is to, to make that point. Catholics maintain that Mary remained a virgin. Catholics do indeed maintain that Mary remained a virgin, and that's a difficult thing uh, to maintain in the face of the scripture. I understand how and why that doctrine is there, but if you just move on, now I want to talk about his occupation, but it actually, this verse answers that question as well. Matthew 13, Jesus has begun his ministry and teaching. He goes back to Nazareth to preach there, and here's the passage. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. And coming, he's traveling around Galilee preaching. He's begun his ministry. He's 30-plus years old. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't uh, his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude? Judas would be Jude from the book of Jude in the New Testament. Aren't all his sisters here with this? Where then did this man get all these things? And they were offended by what he was saying, like, hey, who do you think you are speaking with such authority? But Jesus said, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. So a couple of interesting clues out of this, right? One is, again, by this time, Joseph's not mentioned by name. He probably is not alive. But this sort of is a difficult thing to get around, the idea that, uh, that Mary and Joseph have other children. And so that's why Protestants don't believe that. It's the reason Catholics do really doesn't have anything to do with the Scripture. It has something to do with uh, more their view of Mary, which is a little bit different. So by this time, it appears he's not. I'd like to talk about the occupation here in just a second, but do a question first. Well, um, back to the idea of Mary being a virgin, there's also the idea that she was a virgin until after Jesus was born. Comment on that? Uh, okay, it's going to sound dumb, but I'm not sure I actually understand that question. 
you mean that she and Joseph didn't have intimate relations until after Jesus was born? Right, so that it was a virgin birth. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep it PG-13. Yes, <laughs> there is good reason to think that. Yes, very strong implication in the scripture. In fact, it just pretty much says, I just didn't show you that passage, that Joseph uh, did not know his wife until after Jesus was born. Yes, that, that is scriptural. How long do we think the family stayed in Bethlehem? The children up to age two were killed. Is, does that imply that they were there longer than a few days? It does indeed. Uh, that's a good question about the, just about the Christmas story. A lot of things about the Christmas story that have come down to us are really traditional and they're not very scriptural. And because uh, they were probably, uh, when the wise men came to see uh, Jesus, if you just look at the text carefully, you'll realize that our picture of that is kind of a traditional picture, and it's really based more on television than it is on the scriptures. Likely, they did indeed stay in a house there after, I mean, the baby's not traveling quickly, right? They're in Bethlehem, they're close, so on the eighth day, they take him to the temple, but that's not very far. That's less than three miles away. So they take him into the temple, have the proper things done, they come back, and they stay there for a while. We don't know how long, but the fact that Herod said, kill all the kids less than two years old, means he was uncertain of the exact date of the birth, but he knew it was in some window. So one thing that seems pretty clear is that uh, they did not leave the next day. They stayed there some period of time, but they clearly didn't stay there long enough for Herod to have gotten worried and said, I think the wise men you know, stood me up send the soldiers out. So they were there for some period of time, but we do not know how long. According to, by the way, that's where the uh, Epiphany comes from. Feast of Epiphany, which is uh, the 12 days after Christmas, is traditionally that's when the wise men showed up. You know, they weren't there like right after, oh, what a pretty baby. You just had this baby. You look so wonderful. Can I just post this on Facebook? It was, you know, according to tradition, you celebrate Epiphany 12 days later as the time when the wise men came. That's also not scriptural, but it is a tradition. So they're there for a little bit of time. Good question. Well, I'd like to talk about his occupation briefly, just a little bit about him. As it said, isn't this the carpenter's son? That word in Greek is tekton. It's where we get our word technician or technical from. It's only used two times in scripture, and both is referring to Joseph being a carpenter, a tekton. That word does mean I mean, it can mean carpenter, and it probably does mean that he was a worker in wood. But if you've ever been to Israel and you look around, it's like they don't build a lot of things out of wood. One of the early church fathers, long time later, a uh, hundred years later, according to tradition, said that Jesus was a carpenter. He built plows and other utensils, and that's probably true. He probably did do that. Maybe did some cabinet work, you know, that kind of thing. He undoubtedly did do some of that. That would be encompassed, but not necessarily exclusively so. To be a tecton or a carpenter means you could, would be a tradesman. You might work in wood, but you might also work in stone. In other words, you, were, you had a skill as a builder. A builder is the wrong word, but a repair person, uh, a skilled uh, tradesman of some kind. And so Joseph and Jesus probably grew up, I mean, certainly grew up learning his father's trade. So he probably worked in wood, but he may very well have worked in the building trade. And one reason that I think that's really likely is in this time, there's a town, I'm going to show you this town. It's called uh, Sepphoris. 
You see it right there, really close to Nazareth. It's about uh, six kilometers, maybe, you know, so two, three miles away. It's really close to Nazareth. The Romans destroyed that place about 4 BC and then had a massive rebuilding project. Now, I realize the ruins on the right look like it's destroyed, but this is what's left. To give you an idea, this is Sepphoris today, of the scope and the size of the place. So when it had been destroyed in 4 BC, all the time of Jesus growing up, there was probably massive construction projects here. Sort of like road work, going to build a new road, and it's going to take forever. Oh, yeah, like the one in front of our church. But it's going to take a long time. Well, that's a lot of work. That's steady work for laborers. It's entirely possible that Joseph and Jesus, as he got older, could very well have worked here at Sepphoris. And that would have been good, steady work. They may have done stonework. They might have done a little carpentry, but basically uh, builders, tradesmen. So it's kind of interesting to see the archaeology of this place and know that there were massive building projects going on there, really steady employment. Not at all out of the realm of possibility that Joseph and later Jesus could very well have worked here. It's close enough that you can walk a couple of miles to work. And then you can walk home at the end of the day from a job like this. So it's really interesting seeing the sights of Sepphoris. But that's Jesus, uh, Joseph's character and his occupation. And that's about all we know. There are some apocryphal, and by that I mean untrue, writings about the childhood of Jesus. And no one thinks that they're accurate. They're just wildly crazy stories. But from the scriptures, this is what we can glean. Jesus grew up in a household that was very devout with a father, Joseph, who was a gracious man, a very obedient man, obviously very devoted to his family, very devoted to his faith. And because of those Passover trips, you can understand he's going to, he and Mary are raising their children to be devout followers of God. So that's the kind of place that he grew up in. He probably undoubtedly worked with Joseph and learned that trade. And so that's where we get the idea of Jesus was a carpenter. That undoubtedly was his trade. Woodworking, certainly. Stone, other things, entirely possible. So that's what we know about Joseph as far as his character and about his occupation. Well, what about Jesus' upbringing? We don't know very many events in his life, but I can tell you how he was raised because this is how every Jewish kid was raised in this time, particularly in these little villages. The center of these villages is the synagogue. And the synagogue is the nicest building. It's in the center of the little village. Nazareth, by the way, probably had about 400 people. These are not big places. About 400 occupants. And you'll see the, little, the ruins of the little houses all around the synagogue. The synagogue was the center of their lives. I'll show you one. This is not in Nazareth, but it's in uh, really close. I have no idea what point I'm making there, but I'm really excited about it. This is a, the remains of a synagogue. I believe this is in Chorazin, but it's up in the Galilee area. It's a synagogue like where Jesus would have gone to church. But what I wanted to show you was, uh, and they didn't have the benches. You notice those steps over on the wall? That's where people sat. That's where the important people sat. They got to sit on those stone benches on the wall, and the less important people just sat on the ground. But this is where they'd have church services, and they'd go there every Saturday, every Sabbath, and they'd have church. On the other side of that wall, you can see just a little bit of the stone. And by the way, notice, you don't see a lot of wood there. There's an awful lot of building in stone, not so much in wood. And that's another reason why you think the carpenters probably worked in different materials. But right on the other side of that wall is a little attachment to the synagogue. And it's basically a schoolroom. 
And so here was how children were raised. The Jews then and now, by the way, this is still true today. Observant Jews still read this way. They took the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's also called the Law of Moses. And they split it into little pieces so that through the course of a year, you would read the whole thing. It's called the Parsha reading. It's a little portion of scripture. And if you read that, you will, in the course of a year, get through it. Sort of like through the Bible in a year. Those Bibles where you read a portion every day and you'll get through the whole Bible. Where they would get through the Torah in one year. They split the rest of the Old Testament up into parts so that you would get through it every three years. Because there's a lot more of it. So every Saturday when they would go into the synagogue, they would read the portion, the assigned portion for that week from the law, the first five books, and from the prophets. That's what they called the rest of the Old Testament. You'll remember that great story where Jesus comes up to be the reader that one day and he opens the scroll to the place you're supposed to read and it happens to be that prophecy in Isaiah. And he said, this has come true in your hearing. He was reading the assigned portion for that week. That's what they would do every week in church. They would read the assigned portion. Well, between the ages of 5 and 13, every uh, little boy would go to that school. They would go there every day, and guess what they did? They learned to read, and guess what they learned to read? They would learn to read using the Bible, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they would focus on that Torah portion. They would go through the whole thing in a year, so from age 5 to age 13, every year, they would go through the whole law of Moses. And they would study it all week, and then they would go to church, and they would hear that same thing read that week and talked about in church. And so that was their education system. They didn't care that they learned a lot of mathematics or physics. Let's face it, not a lot of mathematics and physics going on. They went to school to learn God's laws and how to follow God. They learned to read by reading their Bible. And they followed along with the adults. So from age 5 to 13, every kid did that. It's called the Bet Sofer. Bet meaning house, Sofer meaning book. The house of the book attached to the synagogue. Jesus undoubtedly did that. From age 5 to 13, he learned to read. He went through the Torah in uh, all those times, all nine times, eight times. Basically, he's, he's going to grow up like every other little boy. At 13, you become a member of the community. You know the law well enough now that you're supposed to obey it. Today, in modern times, they have a bar mitzvah. And a bar mitzvah simply means you become a son of the commandments, meaning you are now obligated to obey the law of Moses. They do it at age 13. Tradition, they didn't do bar mitzvahs then, but at age 13, you were through with your schooling. You knew how to read. You, knew, you probably had memorized quite a bit, but you knew a lot of the law. You're obligated to do it. And at that point in time, they would go apprentice with their dad, and they would learn a trade. So from 13 to the rest of your life, you'd learn, Jesus went off and learned how to be a carpenter. He learned how to be a tecton, how to be a builder. Some kids, the really promising ones, from 13 to 18 would get additional instruction. And they would go to what's called the Bet Midrash, the house of interpretation where you didn't just learn the law, you learned deeper what it meant. And then a very select few, very select, at 18 years old, would be invited personally by a rabbi to study with a rabbi. 
And that's what we'll see with the Apostle Paul, by the way. That was his career track. He was an academic. Jesus, unlikely, extremely unlikely, whether it's because Joseph was dead or because he simply, that is just not what you did when you were way out in Nazareth, but it's possible that from 13 to 18, Jesus might have received additional instruction in the Bible, but it's, it's uh, conjectural, and it's extremely unlikely that he did anything beyond that. That's why people are so amazed. They're like, look, he went to public school, and we know this guy. How in the world can he have this kind of knowledge, and how in the world can he teach with this authority? This is amazing. That's why they were amazed. Jesus undoubtedly grew up in a place like that, studying in that way. That's how he grew up, and that's how he learned what he knew, and that's why they were so amazed. Question. Does it seem um, funny that if he had grown up that way and never sinned, no one noticed? That if he had never sinned in that way that no one noticed that he had... Growing up in a small community like that right. and certainly in a family with other brothers and sisters, the little boy who never sinned. But, but then it was a big surprise when he came back and they didn't realize there was anything different about him. Well... Let me talk about sin in their terms versus yours, because when you say sin, you're thinking about New Testament idea of sin. I want you to think about sin in terms of being observant of the law of Moses. And so from their point of view, first of all, till you're 13, so you're going to ask yourself, did Jesus tell a lie when he was four years old? Maybe. You know, uh, if that sounds heretical to you, I'm very sorry. But my point is, from a Jewish mindset, in answer to this question, they looked at him and did they not realize he was sinless? They don't expect kids to obey the law of Moses till they're 13 years old. They expect them to be children. So I don't know what Jesus was like there, but that wouldn't have mattered to the community. But from the time he was 13 on, he probably acted like Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man. Now, Jesus exceeded that in the sense that he was truly sinless. But it wouldn't have been something they necessarily would have noticed. Does that make sense? He was devout. He was observant. There were probably several devout and observant people there. It's not something that came up and said, oh, that Jesus, he's a head and shoulders above everybody else. When they see him, they say, look, he's a great kid, you know, devout like his father. But goodness, how did he ever learn this? How did he ever know that? How did he ever get to do miracles? There's something about this young man. It's not that unusual that they would not have noticed his conduct, per se, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, let me make, draw a couple of conclusions from this. Why is Joseph in the genealogy of Jesus? We've got kings, 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 important people, important people, important people, and then we get to Joseph, and he's not an important person. He's not living in an important place. He's not in Jerusalem. He's out in Podunk. He has no great aspirations in life. He never said, gee, I want to be the father of the Messiah. It just, it's, none of this was anything he had in mind or anything he had planned. The only thing he brings is who he is. He doesn't bring any status, any power, any money, any connections. It's like, Jesus, I've got, I know a lot of people. I'm going to use my connections. I'm going to get you the Messiah job. That's not what happened here. He's got nothing to offer. So why is he in the genealogy? Two really important lessons. And both of these things are very applicable to you and me. Here's a powerful idea. God uses humble people and circumstances to do great things. There's a reason his dad wasn't the king of the Jews. Because God's going to make a point. He's going to say, Jesus didn't get to his position. He didn't get his knowledge because he studied at the university. He didn't get his following because he was famous. 
and he hosted a TV show. He didn't get his ability to do miracles and all because he was so well-trained. Instead, you get the most humble circumstances to do the greatest things. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me because we think of ourselves as not up to the standard of, of being used by God in any great way. And that's a good thing because God uses humble things and humble people like us to do great things. God uses humble circumstances to do great things. Nowhere in here do you see that Joseph and Mary led a nice, comfortable, affluent lifestyle. That's not their life. He uses humble circumstances and humble people to do great things. That's Joseph. That's why Joseph is, is in this story. Secondly, the only thing that Joseph has to commend him to God, if you think about it, what's the thing that's mentioned? He's faithful. He's righteous. He's devout. He is going to do what God told him to do. He's obedient. Our faithfulness is the trait most valued by God. He uses it in greater ways than our wealth or our talent. The Bible is full of wealthy, talented people like Herod, like Archelaus, who are powerful, who are connected, who are talented, who are really good at what they do. And those are not the people God uses to do great things. What God values most is he said, if you are faithful, if you trust me, if you will be obedient, I can do huge things with you. If you don't have any faith, I can use you like Archelaus, but I can't do anything with you. Remember when Jesus is doing miracles, in one place you'll see in the gospel, it says, but he didn't do many miracles there because of their little faith. That's not because Jesus can't do miracles. I mean, if you read other places, Jesus does miracles for people that don't even, they're not even Jewish. They certainly don't have a, you know, any great faith in God. The point that they're trying to make is simply this, is he can't use that. Faithfulness is the thing that God prizes. That's Joseph's story, a humble man who had nothing to offer but his obedience and his faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but that's a great Christmas lesson to me, is what does God want from us? What does God want me to do in my life? What's God's plan for my life? Well, I'll give you the basic answer. God simply wants us to be faithful. It doesn't matter if we're up here, we're down here on the social ladder. It doesn't matter how sophisticated or how humble we are. He says, I just want you to walk humbly and faithfully before me, and I'll take care of the rest. To me, that takes a great load off of our minds in terms of what are we supposed to achieve for God. You actually don't have to achieve anything for God. You just be faithful, and he will achieve great things with you. That's why I love the story of Joseph. That's why you don't know very much about Joseph. It's, that's the whole point. The only thing we really need to know about Joseph is that he was faithful, and he did what God asked him to do powerful lesson for us and that's your assignment until I see you again is to be faithful and see what God does with that okay God bless you thank you for coming and thank you for your great questions <laughs>